It is on uh, days like today that uh, when I come early, I, I come early to do a sound check for this, that I'm reminded how many people are involved in making this day happen so marvelously and so effortlessly. And so if you would, just for a moment, just give some applause for so many people that make this day a full day. Uh, I have a friend, he's my college roommate, and we uh, continue to have contact with each other. I, I sometimes don't know why. But uh, he, he always reminds me of this when he knows that I'm speaking uh, here at Grace Chapel. He always reminds me that <clears throat> as a pastor, which he is, he's been a pastor for about 25 years, as a pastor, he always finds the absolute worst guy that he can find to fill in for him when he leaves so that the people will want him back. <laughs> so he always reminds me of that whenever, we, uh, whenever he knows this. So anyway. Summer of service has been the theme, and there have been many different ways in which service has been talked about and getting involved and things like that. But one of the things for me during the summer especially that I often discover is that I lay out a plan of action of what I want to do and things I want to get involved with, and, and I start the week after school's out, and I say, I'm, I'm going to get this done. I have my selection of books that I want to read. I have my collection of people I want to contact and make sure that I talk to and encourage or do something with. And the little extra things that you want to do during the summer, you create those things and you say, this is what's going to happen. I put those down on a list and all of a sudden it's July 4th and my list is still as long as it was at the beginning. And then as the the days continue, I begin to realize that sometimes even though your intentions are good, things pop up that stand in the way of wanting you to serve, of wanting you to do what you want to do, of ministry, these roadblocks. You know, in summer is the perfect time to be reminded of roadblocks. Wherever you go, there are orange barrels or, or barriers set up as work is being done. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to learn about how to overcome these roadblocks, how to to get past them. Now, the thing about this morning's message is that this opposition or the roadblocks that often come, come as a result of us doing something, doing, being active. I teach school, and a a student will fail a test. He won't hand in his homework. He won't read the textbook. uh, He won't come after school to see me. And he won't follow up on the necessary things that make success in a classroom. And I get an email from a parent that says, my child's failing your class. Why? It's pretty easy. They're doing nothing. They're doing nothing. This morning's message is not about those people that are doing nothing. It's about those that are doing something. Those that are involved in trying to serve, trying to minister. And they seem to always come up against something. And so these reminders will help us to get past that to help us to keep going, to get things done in a way that brings honor and glory to God. So what we'll do is we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 4, and we will learn about three reminders, three reminders that help us overcome the roadblocks in service. Uh, Nehemiah is a great book. Chapter 1 is about Nehemiah finding out about Jerusalem and its walls are down. He's a, 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 a good Jew. He's an Israelite. He, he is sorrowful. He cries. He's upset. He prays to God. And God says, well, go. 
In chapter 2, he goes to the king and says to the king, I need supplies, I need permission, I need letters of passage, please let me go. The king says, here they are. Chapter 3, he goes to do the work. And the work is progressing, the walls are going up, and things are going well. Chapter 4, the roadblocks come, the opposition comes. So again, we have someone who is doing something and is giving us an example of how do we handle it as we are trying to attempt and do things for God. How do we handle these roadblocks? The first reminder that he gives us is in uh, verses 1 through 3. He reminds us that criticism is inevitable. Criticism is inevitable. Look at verse 1. It says, When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Now, he heard either the noise of the work going on or he heard from spies. Because one of the things that was rampant during this time period is people that would go out and spy and look and say what's going on. And Sam Ballot, who was a Samaritan, is very upset. He burned with anger, is the idea here, because the walls are going up. And he is annoyed, irritated by this. It's reminiscent of the picture of Jonah chapter 4. Remember, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. He didn't go to Nineveh. He was swallowed by the great fish, spit up, went to Nineveh and preached. And then he went up on a hill and sat on a hill to watch to see Nineveh, the city, destroyed, as God said it would be. And when it wasn't destroyed, he became angry, irritated, upset. That's the same idea here. Sanballat is just beside himself with anger at what is happening and what he is seeing. It says in verse 1, he continues, he says, he ridiculed the Jews, he derided them, he mocked them because of what they are doing. Now things have intensified. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19, Sam Ballad asked the question, who do you think you are? You know, do you think you're going to do something that the king really doesn't want you to do? So it was just merely a statement. Well, now it has amped up the opposition. Things are more intense. Things are more problematic. He's more upset. And his anger comes from a couple of things. If you think about that time period and you allow your mind to drift back and imagine what it was like, Sanballat and the Samaritans had control of a trade route along there. And so if the Jews come back and Israel rebuilds, then that's going to be competition for the trade and will cut into their commerce, cut into their money. So he's very angry about this and very upset. This criticism is coming. Also, if you think about it, in Nehemiah chapter 2, we learn this about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer to the king didn't just bring a cup of wine. That's not all that he did. What he did was he would bring his food, and he would always taste it first. Now, the reason he would taste it is because people were always trying to kill the king. And so they couldn't poison him with his food because he had someone testing it. And that's the position that Nehemiah had. It's a position of honor, but it wasn't the position that Sanballat had. Sanballat is this great, mighty warrior. And so the reason why he's so angry and upset is because here is this nobody, cupbearer, against me, this warrior, and he's having more success than I am. And he is very critical of that. As you seek to serve and do things for God and minister on his behalf, you will find those individuals that will criticize you as they criticize Nehemiah. The other thing that happens here with Sanballat is change, change. You see, if Nehemiah is successful in building the wall, that's going to change the landscape, the scenery, because then Jerusalem will be a player in what's happening in that world, and Sanballat doesn't want change. Think about it in your own home. You say to your husband or to your wife, I want to do something. I want to serve. They oppose that because that's going to mean 
change in your house. It's going to mean somebody assuming other duties, helping out, doing something different. You want to serve, you want to do something, but they don't want you to because that means change for them and that they criticize you. You see, criticism is inevitable. The building of the wall prompted opposition. You see, criticism comes very often in Scripture, doesn't it? Remember when Mary went to Jesus and broke the alabaster box of ointment and and poured it on Jesus' feet and the smell filled the room? What a beautiful, marvelous gift and imagery and all of those kinds of things. And what do you have? You have disciples going, man, we could have used that money for something else. Why did she do that? What kind of criticism? It's inevitable. It happens. You say, well, you know, I'm sitting here this morning and nobody's criticizing me. I have no opposition. Well, maybe that's because you're doing nothing. When I was in college, I played basketball, and we had a scouting report uh, of the teams that we would play. And one time we got a scouting report, and on the scouting report it said, President's Son by one player. And we're all like, President's Son, what does that mean? And the coach, as he was going over the scouting report, we said, what is President's Son, what does that mean? He says, well, this kid does nothing. So he's either the university president's son, or he's the board president's son because he's on the team. That's the only reason, because he does nothing. So don't go near him. You don't have to defend him. You don't have to pay any attention to him. You see, those people that are doing something, those are the ones that are experiencing the criticism. If you're doing nothing, you're in the right place because no one will criticize you. They will be happy to let you go and do nothing. But you see, Nehemiah is doing something. He is working hard. And notice in verse 2 what he says. It says, And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria... This really kind of raises the stake. This is a public criticism, an attack on what is happening with Nehemiah. And he does the attacking with these five questions. He says first, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? The word feeble means hopeless or withering. These powerless Jews, what are they doing? Uh, The second question he asks, he says, will they restore their wall?" The question, do you think with your poor resources and who you are, do you think you're going to build this wall? It's a mocking session that's happening publicly, the criticism of what they're attempting to do. He says, will they offer sacrifices? This is an attack on their God, isn't it? You see, because what he's saying is, what do they think they're going to be able to do, just pray up the wall? He also asked the question, "Will will they finish in a day? You see, the question is, have you counted the cost? Do you consider the amount of time it takes to get this done, this job done? These are all questions that sometimes come to you as you decide, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. And then there are those critics that say, well, do you really understand what this is all about? Do you really get this? The final question that he delivers is, is, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? You see, when the destruction of the walls had come, it wasn't just a matter of tearing them down. It was then setting them afire so they couldn't be used again and rebuilt easily. And Sanballat is attacking, attacking, attacking. When you decide that you want to minister for God, when you decide you want to serve for Him, you are getting yourself in a position where you are going to be involved in critics. Critics criticizing what you are doing and what you are saying. You see, the the critics fail to understand something. And Sandballot misses this as well. Uh, the, the, The critics fail to recognize that what you are doing, you are doing for God. 
you're doing for God. Uh, Notice what happens in verse 3. Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side. Critics love company, don't they? And that's what he gets. He gets someone that just kind of chimes in. It's like if you go to uh, the New Testament and and you read the story about Jesus' crucifixion, you will see the oddest people joining together in crucifying Jesus. But you see, that's what we find. We find a common target and we attack it as critics. And that's what happens here. Tobiah the Ammonite and Samballot joined together. And, and notice what he says. What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down the wall of stones. You see, a, a fox weighs between 12 and 15 pounds. And so if a fox that's something that weighs that amount can crawl up on this wall and crumble it down, you're talking about worthless workmanship. You're talking about people who have failed miserably. He, he, his point that he's making is that you people can't do anything right. Criticism. Criticism. The wall is built. It's about halfway done. And here come the critics saying, this is a job that's going to fail. As you do service, remember, criticism is inevitable. Look at verse 4 and find out the second reminder that we need. The second reminder as we serve in our attempt to overcome these roadblocks, notice what happens in verse 4. Prayer is invaluable. Prayer is invaluable. In verse 4, it says this, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. In chapter 2, no need for a real response. Nehemiah just kept building. In chapter 4, things have become very intense, and Nehemiah brings out the big guns. Brings out the big guns. Prayer. Prayer. You say, well, you know what? I'm a doer. I'm a doer. But there are those that have said this. You are never more successful than when you are on your knees in prayer. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29 says this. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. You see, what happens is if, if we don't include prayer in the work that we're doing, then all it becomes is philanthropy. We're not philanthropists. We are members of the body of Christ that are doing the work for the King of Kings, our God, our Savior. And so therefore, we need His power and His enabling to get us through the work that He's called us to do. The critics stand before us and say, you can't do this. You can't accomplish. And so instead of forming some little focus group or some little gossip and saying, we're going to just make fun of them, Nehemiah goes to prayer because prayer is an invaluable part of what is happening in life. I was reading uh, in USA Today. In USA Today, they had a poll, and it said, uh, you know, what summer activity are you least likely to give up? And 28% of the people polled said prayer. I was surprised by that. Because sometimes prayer is the neglected part of it because we live in a world where, you know, we want to be doers, we want to be workers, we want to be seen, we want to be out there, we want to get the action in. But you see, God reminds us time and time again that He is the one that is getting us ready for the next step so that we can overcome the roadblocks that are before us. A great example of this is in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, remember, uh, Jesus was good friends with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. 
They lived in Bethany, and, and Lazarus dies, and Jesus goes to Bethany. And when he arrives, what does Martha say? If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Criticism, criticism. They go to the, the place where Lazarus is buried, and, and she goes, why do you come here? They stink. Criticism, criticism. What does Jesus do? He stops and he prays to God. And he says that he does it, and, and in John chapter 11, he says he does it for the people that are there so they see him do it. And then he says to them, he says, okay, roll the stone away. You're God. You could just snap your fingers and turn that stone into dust. But see, that's something you can do. So do it. So roll the stone away. And then what does Jesus do? He walks up and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus comes forth. And there's Lazarus in his grave clothes. And Jesus, being God, he could have snapped his fingers again and he could have been dressed in a perfectly fine toga. But instead, what does Jesus do? He looks at the people and says, you go and unwrap the the dead clothes off of him. Do you understand what's happening there? Do you see what's happening? There are things you can do that you don't have to say, you know what, God, I really need to think about this and pray over it. Some things you just, just move the stone. Just take off the grave clothes. There are other things that only God can do. And those are the reasons why we go to him. Here, Sanballat, he has an army against uh, Nehemiah and his friends that have gathered to rebuild this wall. And so he goes to him in prayer and he says, God, hear me, help me, I need you. Prayer is imperative. If we are to do the work of God, we are to be involved in listening to what it is that God wants, but also talking to him so that we get his power to do what we need to do. In verse 4, he says, Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Uh, you get the picture here. It's pretty intense. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty uh, direct things. Well, the reason why he's so intense, the reason why it's so, so kind of like bottom line is because this is God's work that Nehemiah is doing. There is no time to mess around. <laughs> it is time to bring in the, the big guns. And that's what happens. And in verse 5, he really takes it up. In verse 5, he says this. He says, Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. What he does here is he takes an Old Testament language. He's using Old Testament language. Have you heard the word atonement? The word atonement is the idea of covering up. And what happened was the sacrifices, the blood would cover up the sins of the person offering the sacrifices. And so in essence, what Nehemiah is saying is don't allow their sins to to disappear from your sight, Lord. Remember them. You see, because what we have, it's a marvelous thing. The analogy of the Old Testament comes alive in Christ as well in the New Testament because what happens is Christ goes to the cross, he dies, he's a sacrifice for my sin, for your sins. We trust in what he did, believing that he died on the cross for our sins. And then the blood of Jesus Christ becomes the covering. So that what happens is when God looks at me, he doesn't see Drew Baker, he sees Jesus Christ. I'm clothed in his blood. And so anything that happens to me and anything that I do that I might fail has covered by the blood. And so what Nehemiah is saying, don't allow that to be covered up. God, continue to see their sins. Continue to see their, their, their problems. Don't blot it out. In essence, what he's saying is, don't allow them to have salvation. You, you see, he really brings this to a high level. He really brings the intensity here. 
We don't hear these kinds of prayers often, do we? I teach school, and I teach in a Christian school, and one of the things I intentionally don't do is pray in my classroom to open it every day. And the reason for that is because I don't want it to become perfunctory. I don't want my students walking in thinking, oh, we're going to pray today. Instead, I want them to walk in expecting something different. And I know it's a classroom, it's not a church, so a little different. But I will pray with them individually, a great privilege that I have, so that they understand the personalness of prayer. And you see, sometimes we miss that. Uh, the, the art of prayer has, has disappeared because we have lost routine. We don't have a routine. We won't say, you know what, I'm going to pray this time every day. We've lost the relationship. We aren't as close to God as we would like to be, so therefore we can't pray as regularly because we find ourselves in, in a situation and maybe our life isn't where it ought to be, and so we kind of put off praying and talking to God. When instead, that's when he wants to hear from us most. So we need to talk to him so that when the time and the need arises for us to say, God, I need you, he's there and ready for us and for our prayers. Prayer is invaluable. We can look to God for vindication and not for a moment accept the, the, the world's low opinion of us. Reminders this morning. Criticism is inevitable. Prayer is invaluable. And then look at verse 6. Persistence is imperative. Persistence is imperative. Verse 6 says this, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. The work went on in spite of the insults. Uh, the, the, the words stung. Let's pause for just a moment here. The guy that said, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but my words will never harm you. He has never been in a high school setting. <laughs> words are devastating. And these words that Sanballat used against the people of Israel were hurtful words because these are people that are sacrificing. These are people that are doing something for God. They have given up and left where they were to come here and to spend time and to invest and to rebuild. And it is a difficult thing to have to listen to these criticisms. But they continue on in it anyway. They keep pushing through. They didn't mope around. They didn't find fault with leadership. They didn't form any kind of a setting where they say, you know what, we're, we're leaving, we quit, we move out. Instead, they concentrated on doing the thing that, called, that God called them to do. God called them to come and build the wall. And Nehemiah has, has punctuated the importance of God in all of this by praying. See, each, each of these build on it. Criticism comes, I pray to God, and then I go on with the work. If, if you have your Bible, let's... Uh, See if I can find this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this in verse 10. Uh, let's start at verse 9. It's not on the screen, so just listen. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet with me, uh, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. See what happens here? What happens is all of a sudden when we are, 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 are discovering and we are overcome with the realization that we're doing the work of God, we do it even more. 
we do it even harder. We don't care what the critics say. We step back and say, God, help me, and God helps you, and then you persist in doing the work. Persistence is imperative. They, they, they do it all. Seeing Nehemiah, hearing his commitment to God, uh, inspires them to continue the work. Now, if we had time, we would go through the rest of chapter 4, and the rest of chapter 4, you find out what happens is Sanballat shows up with his army. And what Nehemiah does is he gives one guy a spear and one guy his shovel. And so they're working with a spear and a shovel. Then all of a sudden he divides the labor so that he has guys with spears protecting the guys with shovels. But the work persisted. It continued. It kept going. And that's what Nehemiah reminds us. The enemies appear small and shrill, dwarfed by a faith in God who is able to accomplish so much. Criticism, prayer, persistence. Reminders that help us get through the summer of service and a lifetime of commitment to Jesus Christ. I'm reading a book this summer. It's called Traitor to His Class. H.W. Brands, he's a professor at the University of Texas. He wrote this monumental volume on the life of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And, and I, I, I don't appreciate his politics. Um, sorry, that's, that wasn't a political statement. Uh, that was a point of view. Um, but anyway, uh, and, and, but in 1921, uh, Franklin Roosevelt and his children were swimming in a lake. Roosevelt felt tingling in his body and didn't know what it was. He went home and he laid in the bed and his legs were killing him. They just hurt so badly. His upper body and his arms were sore as well. So he, he, he went to bed and he laid in bed and the doctor came and the doctor checked him and said, oh, it's just a virus, you'll be, you'll be okay. Then another doctor came and says, no, it's not a virus, you have a, a blood clot that's pressing against your spinal cord. And so you need to massage the legs and get the blood flowing so that it'll push this blood clot away. A third doctor came and the doctor says, no, you have polio, polio. They called it infant paralysis at that time. 1921 he lost the use of his legs. 1945, he died. He had locked braces and leaned on his sons, either James or Elliot, to get himself around. For 24 years, he ran for governor and he ran for president four different times and brought the United States through their most difficult times, the Great Depression and World War II, as a cripple. As a cri- now, think about this. 1921 to 1945, 24 years, he could not walk, and hardly anyone knew it. And the reason for that is because he persisted. He worked so hard to develop the muscles in his arms and his upper back that his associates in later days, as they sat and looked at Franklin Roosevelt, they marveled at the size that his arms and shoulders had gathered because of the work that he did. He could have very easily retired to live on the Roosevelt money for the rest of his life. His mother was loaded and could have taken care of him, but instead he kept going. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, he was doing that for political means. Imagine how much more I should persist in doing something that means so much to God. So this morning as we serve... Let's remember that criticism is inevitable, prayer is invaluable, and persistence is imperative. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that is ours to be able to open the Word of God and to be instructed by it. Father, we ask that we would 
not only hear the words this morning of what you have to say, but we would also be reminded to each day take a few moments to look into your word and to talk to you to find out how we can continue on doing what you want us to do. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.